Courtney. Whoever's mic this is. You know what? I'm just going to, we'll just do this and then. Great start. <laughs> yeah. Well, good morning. <laughs> it's good to be with you. Uh, if you have your Bibles, get them out and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Um, sometimes I feel like I need to start out the, the message with a joke to kind of pull you in, but I think this morning I am the joke, so we'll just dive right in. Um, Matthew chapter 5, we are continuing our sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, which is a bit of a misnomer. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount was likely uh, a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples on the mountainside. He withdrew from the crowds to this little plateau, and uh, it says in Matthew 5, verse 1, uh, when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. Jesus is having this conversation with his followers about what? About the nature of the kingdom about the nature of the kingdom of God. We know that the Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom of God because really all through Matthew chapters 1 to 4, uh, Matthew has intentionally connected Jesus to uh, the promises of David, uh, King David from Israel. He's, he's repeatedly used this, this phrase of the kingdom of God. You'll notice if you look back in Matthew chapter 4, uh, if you look up just a little ways in verse 23 of chapter 4, it says that Jesus went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming what? The gospel of the kingdom. And then as we land here in verse 5, we'll notice the first beatitude there in, in, in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what we recognize as we come to the Sermon on the Mount is that the king is here. The king of the world is here, and the king is speaking. And the king is speaking about what life in his kingdom looks like. The Sermon on the Mount is like the, uh, you could think of it like the constitution of the kingdom, which lays out the values and the way of life of citizens in the kingdom of God. Now, it's important to recognize, maybe, maybe you're new with us, or maybe you're not a follower of Jesus, he's... He, this is important for you to know, he's not laying out a bunch of ethical uh, virtues that are requirements in order to make it into the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount's not a grading rubric where we read these ethical invitations that he's going to give us and then we try to figure out if we're, if we're good enough to enter, enter the kingdom. Uh, that's not the point. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to uh, people who have already become or are soon uh, to be invited into the kingdom by faith. By trusting in Jesus, who is our good enough. By trusting in Jesus, who is the king. Trusting in Jesus, who's the only one that can qualify us for the kingdom. Right? We are naturally, in our natural state, apart from God's intervention, rebels against God. Uh, we are treasonous rebels against God. Uh, the only way for us, our enemy hearts, to be made friends of God is for Jesus to come and work a miracle in us through faith. As we trust in him, as we trust in his perfect life on our behalf, 
as we trust in his death that we deserve, as we trust in his resurrection from the dead that secures for us citizenship in the kingdom. That's how we enter. But now that we're in the kingdom of God, what does it look like to be citizens? What does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like to experience the good life that the king provides? The kingdom of God is not just something that's up there in heaven. It's not just something that's out there in the future. The kingdom of God is the rule of Christ in the hearts and homes of God's people that impacts life here and now and leads to flourishing. Flourishing in our souls, flourishing in our relationships. The kingdom of God is the rule of Christ in all of life. But it's also, it's, it's not just the rule of Christ. The kingdom of God is also the presence of Christ. The presence of Christ. The nearness of Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 4.27, you can look over to the left for a second if you want to. He said, uh, sorry, verse 7 of chapter 4. Uh, where is it? I'm using a different Bible. Sorry, verse 17 of chapter 4. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see that there? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Your Bibles might have a little, um, a little marker there that draws your eyes to the bottom of the page. Or the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven is close. It's near. It's present. Because the king is near and close and present. So we're talking about the kingdom of God. We're talking about life in the kingdom of God. We're talking about what it looks like to lean into these invitations of Jesus that we might experience the good life that he made us for in his kingdom. And we're talking about his presence. That part of living in the, pre the, the, the kingdom of God is that we live uh, in the face of Christ, in the presence of Christ. And so the question that I have for you as we start is do you experience the presence of of Jesus in your life? Do you experience the presence of Jesus? Do you experience the closeness of Jesus? Would you say that you have intimacy with Jesus? Do you feel close to him? Is it more than just theological and th theoretical ideas, but do you actually experience his nearness? Maybe not as much as you would like. And perhaps one reason that we don't experience the nearness, the closeness, the presence of Christ in the way in which he designed us for is because we do not readily grant him and his people passport to our pain, to our sorrow to our grief, to our sadness. Yes, we experience the presence of Christ when we read the scriptures, but we also experience the presence of Christ when we read our sorrows. You just think about the people that are closest to you, the people that are closest to you in your life. Maybe it's a spouse, a close friend. My guess would be that the people who are closest to you are the ones who have seen into the dark places of your soul. 
your closeness with others will rise and fall to the degree that you share your sorrows with them. And so if you want to experience the nearness, the closeness, the intimacy, the comfort of Christ, we have to learn to lament. We have to learn to sit in our sadness and invite Jesus into it. We have to learn to pray angry, sad, tear-filled, frustrated prayers. This morning we're going to look at the hidden blessing of mourning. The hidden blessing of mourning in verse uh, uh, verse 4. And so if you remember nothing else this morning, remember this. Mourning builds a bridge to your brokenness. It opens the door to your despair. It closes the gap to your pain. When you open your heart to God and to others, you position yourself to receive his comfort, his nearness. Mourning closes the gap between your pain and Jesus' presence. If you want to to experience the nearness of Christ, the power of Christ in your life, you have to learn to lament. May we learn the hidden blessing of mourning this morning. Let's read Matthew 5, verses 1 to 4. Again, seeing the crowd, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So here we come to the second beatitude. Beatitude comes from the Latin word for blessing. Uh, But the Greek word uh, that we translate blessed is makarios. Makarios, which really doesn't have a a super great um, uh, uh, transliteration into English or or Latin. Makarios, it's one of those words that we just just culturally don't don't get our hands around well. Uh, It's more than just kind of a word of encouragement. It's more than God just giving you kind of a, a thumbs up, like God bless you. Uh, and it's, it's more than, than connected to your circumstances or to your, to your stuff. It's not material blessing. It's, it's deeper. It's more significant than that. It refers to a, a deeply fulfilled and abundant life, a, a life of, of flourishing. It's a word that, that Greek philosophers talked about a lot. Uh, Aristotle referred to it as the highest happiness. Makarios refers to a way of being in the world that that looks like and feels like flourishing. The Hebrews had a word for this in the Old Testament, and it was shalom. Shalom. Shalom, a life of, of fullness where your heart and your relationships are healthy and brimming with, with meaning and significance and depth. Shalom. Makarios. A blessed life. And so Jesus, this Uh, rabbi and this king from another world steps really into the intersection of Hebrew thought and Greek thought and he says I'm going to show you where this good life of flourishing is to be found and it's found in mourning. Hmm. 
You see, these blessings are, are rooted in the, the last part of the, uh, the verse. You'll notice the word for there after the comma, blessed are the poor in spirit, for, blessed are those who mourn, for. That word for, it, it connects the blessing to the, to the last part of the verse, which is where the, the blessing is to be found, which is where it's rooted. And what does it say? This, this blessing comes through the comfort of God. Flourishing comes through the comfort of God. The one who is blessed is the one who experiences the comfort of God. And as much as we would like to jump straight to the comfort, we have to see that the, the green pastures and the quiet waters are found in the valley of the shadow of death. Those who receive the blessing are those who are comforted. And those who are comforted are those who mourn, are those who grieve, are those who weep, are those who are sad, are those who befriend their sorrow and their trouble. Mourning closes the gap between your pain and the presence of Christ in your life. So what is mourning? We're just looking at these three words, blessed, mourning, and comfort. What is mourning? Simply put, mourning is just, just experiencing and expressing a heart that is broken over sin and suffering. And if you, if you look at the news and you see what's going on in the world, you should kind of understand what this feels like a little bit. It's, it's experiencing, and not just experiencing, but expressing a heart that's broken over sin and over suffering. The closest synonym that we have to pentheo, uh, this word mourn, is lament. You think of the Psalms of lament or the book of lamentations. One author, Mark Bogrip, who uh, upon the death of his daughter wrote a book on lament, writes, Lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart, wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promises of God. How is it that I can feel so much pain? How is it that they can feel so much pain and these promises be true? Where are you, God? What are you doing? Lament. A life of flourishing, friends, the life of flourishing that God made you for will look like a painting that uses every color, even the dark ones. It will sound like a symphony which harmonizes the full range of notes, even the minor keys. If you try to power through life with just a positive attitude and a smile on your face, never sharing the sin and the suffering that keeps you up at night, your soul will shrink. And God and others will feel distant from you. Mourning enlarges the soul's capacity to experience the presence and the comfort of God. Mourning enlarges the soul's capacity to experience, to feel, to know the nearness and the comfort of God in your life. But we don't like it because it doesn't feel good. 
And it's a sign of weakness. This is a generalization. I'm not trying to be a sexist here, but I think this is especially true for men. We don't like to mourn. We don't like to cry. We don't like to expose these things that keep us up at night because it makes us look weak. But remember, friends, the kingdom of God is upside down from the kingdom of the world. Have you seen uh, Stranger Things, that show? This is not a recommendation of Stranger Things, but if you've seen Stranger Things, you know there's that upside down world of darkness, right? That's like kind of always there, but you can't see it. We live in the upside down. And, and, and the world of, of heaven, the world of God is really the right side up. And it's invading our upside down world. And it feels upside down. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel normal. But it is the pathway to blessing. And look, you see this. All the strongest men of the scriptures wept. Abraham, Moses, David, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the great apostles, Peter, Paul. All of them wept, cried out to the Lord with sorrow. And what about the strongest man? The strongest man to ever live. You know who that was, right? Jesus. Did he weep? Did he mourn? Did he grieve? He did. Often. The one with the most emotional fortitude and self-control mourned over the sin of his people. Over the, the, the suffering of his people and the destruction of Jerusalem. Over the death of his friend Lazarus. Over the suffering that he would endure on the cross for you. And for me. And so if Jesus, our good king, mourns, then so should we. And the things that Jesus mourned over help us. They instruct us to know what we should mourn over. And really it's two things. We mourn, we grieve over sin. And we mourn, we grieve over suffering. Sin and suffering. First and foremost, we grieve over our sin. You think of Isaiah 6.5. Isaiah sees the glory of the Lord, the holiness of the Lord. And he, and he falls down. And he weeps and he says, woe to me. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Do you mourn over your sin? Do you mourn over your sin? Shame gets a bad rap sometimes. Uh, I give shame a bad rap sometimes. That you don't want to feel shame. And that conviction and shame are different. Sometimes I think we're splitting hairs when we do that. There's a proper place for shame in the Christian life. Now you can't stay in your shame. That's where it's unhelpful and unhealthy. You have to move through your shame to the gospel. But that... But that feeling of, of unworthiness, that feeling of brokenness, that feeling of sorrow, that feeling of humiliation that brings you to tears over what you have done and over who you are is a catalyst 
to get you to the comfort of God? Do you mourn your sin? Others sin. Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I mean, we see this on a, on a global scale when we read the news and we, and we observe the, the horrific terrorist attacks of Hamas and the desecration of human life. When we look across our, our nation and in many parts of the world and we see the, the, the murder and the mutilation of, of babies in their most innocent state, does it break your heart? Sometimes it comes closer to home and someone wounds you. A friend speaks ill of you. A friend betrays you. A family member breaks your trust. Do you just try to power through that? Offer forgiveness and just move on real quick so you don't have to deal with those uncomfortable feelings? Or do you sit in that place of mourning and sadness? Blessed are those who mourn. And then, of course, what does our sin cause? Our sin causes suffering. Our sin causes suffering. And that's not even to say that your suffering and the suffering of the people that you love is a direct consequence of specific sins. It's just to say that sin has entered the world and now the world is fractured and broken. And you suffer many times for no reason at all other than you are caught up in a broken, broken world. Oftentimes you suffer and it's not your fault. Sometimes you suffer and you're you're doing the right thing, right? You've, you've got morning sickness <laughs> and you're suffering. Why? Because you're, you're, you're bringing new life into the world. You're doing the right thing and you're still suffering. Do you grieve? Do you try to grit your teeth and just power through or do you take the time to sit and mourn and grieve the suffering that befalls your life? And do we mourn other suffering? Romans 12, 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. The, the people of God, we're like, we're like a, we're connected. We're, we're a body. When one part of the body is injured, the, the other parts of the body, they feel that and they have to compensate for that. D do you know what's going on in the lives of the people around you? You can't mourn with people if you have no idea what's going on in their life. Are you close enough to other people in this room, in this church, to where you know what keeps them up at night, to where you know what's causing them pain? Do you know? Are you close to them in their suffering? We're to be the embodiment of the, the closeness of Christ. One of the ways that he comforts us, comforts us is through his people. Blessed are those who mourn. What do we mourn? We mourn our sin. 
others' sin, our suffering, others' suffering. And what does this look like? Blessed are those who mourn. Um, I'm kind of moving into application a little bit. What does it look like to mourn? Jesus doesn't spell it all out for us here in verse 4. He's just giving a blessing saying, if you live a mourning life, you will be blessed. You will receive the comfort of God. But the rest of the scriptures give us a picture of how to mourn. Really, the Psalms, like most of the Psalms give us a picture of how to mourn. How do you mourn? What does it look like? I'm going to give you an acronym, okay? I, I want this to be helpful for you. I want you to be able to take this with you as you go. How do we mourn? Um, the acronym is NEAR. Near, talking about the nearness of Christ. Near, the first is N, to name it. To name what's going on in your heart. To name the sorrow of your heart. I teach my, my sons this, to, to name their sadness. Bridger runs through the house, he's upset, and he'll, he'll just say over and over again, I'm sad, I'm sad, I'm sad. And that's good because it, it clues me in on what's going on in his heart, and I'm able to, to move, move close to him and, and give, him, give him comfort. Name it. Man, I just, I'm, I'm burdened over this because if your life is anything like mine, we just, we just try to keep moving. Like, I don't like to sit in silence, in stillness, and think about the things that trouble my soul because it's uncomfortable. And so I just keep doing stuff. And over time, my soul shrinks. Can you name it? Can you name what's going on in your heart? I'm sad. I'm sad. And I'm sad because my marriage isn't what I thought that it would be. I'm sad because my relationship with my kids is not what I wanted it to be. I'm sad because I keep making the same mistake over and over and over again, and I'm ashamed of who I have become. I'm sad, and I don't know why. I just am sad. And I need help. Can you name it? The E is express it. Express it. You got to name it, but then express it to the Lord, to other people. Friends, if you, if you experience trouble in your soul, sadness in your soul, mourning in your soul, but it doesn't come out, it doesn't come out in prayer or in conversations with, with other brothers and sisters, what will happen is your sadness, your grief will, will calcify, it will become compacted, it will metastasize, and it will turn into resentment and bitterness. That's what will happen. If, if your grief is not expressed to God and to others, it will metastasize and turn into a cancerous resentment and bitterness in your soul. Like, like a chimney that, that channels up the smoke so that your, your house doesn't get smoked out. We have, to, we have to channel our mourning to the Lord. This is the Psalms, man. My tears have been my food day and night. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? Where are you? Grief and darkness is my only companion. 
God can handle that. He can handle He can handle your grief. He can handle your frustration. Express it. Name it. Express it. And ask. Ask for, for mercy. James says you, ha- you do not have because you do not ask. Listen, generally speaking, generally speaking, Jesus will respect your boundaries. Generally speaking, Jesus will respect your boundaries. Okay? But if you invite him in, he will come and bring his comfort. You do not have because you do not ask. Ask for mercy. Ask for help. This is all connected to verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's this understanding that I have need. That I'm empty. And I need you to fill me. Ask for God to show up. And then the last one, R, as we start to bring the plane down for landing, is to receive. Name it. Express it. Ask and receive the comfort that is promised to us in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall, they will. This is a promise. They will be comforted. When you look at the Psalms of lament, they're kind of shaped like a U. It has to get worse before it gets better, right? You have to go down into the, the grave of sorts in order to come back out in resurrection life. And that's what our, that's what our mourning looks like. That's what our, our lamenting looks like. It, it looks like reflecting more deeply, more deeply, more deeply upon our sorrow, upon that which, which grieves our hearts. And then in that low place, finding the comfort of God in a unique way that we cannot find in any other way. Hebrews chapter 4, Jesus is referred to as the high priest who can sympathize, sum pathos, feel with his people. Oftentimes we don't receive the comfort of Christ, we don't feel the comfort of Christ, we don't experience the nearness of Christ because we don't invite him in to the things that trouble our souls. We just keep on moving. Charles Spurgeon said, they who dive into the dark sea of mourning discover rare pearls. And that brings us to to the comfort of Christ. To the comfort of Christ. How does he comfort us? What does this this promise look like? Well, first, he, he comforts us by covering our sin. That sin that we grieve, Jesus covers it. That sin that you're ashamed of, Jesus covers it. He heals it. He wipes it away. Right after um, Isaiah said, I am a, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Amongst a people of unclean lips, he fell to the ground. An angel came. And an angel came in this symbolic gesture, touched his tongue with a coal and said, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Jesus went all the way down into your mourning, into the source of your mourning, to your sin. He was completely naked, ashamed on the cross, tears and blood mingling down his body. 
He went down into the grave. That grave which, which brought him to tears when he looked into Lazarus' tomb. He went down into it himself. And then he rose. He rose from the dead, Jesus did. Three days later, conquering sin and death and securing for you the comfort of God in your sin. He also comforts us through his Holy Spirit, who's referred to as the comforter. We feel the nearness of Jesus in our souls because we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Like, you don't need to get um, spooked out by this. The Spirit of God is a person who lives in you and with you. And if he feels distant from you relationally, perhaps it's because we're not inviting him into these darker parts of our heart. But if we do, like these times where I sit down and I just journal all the things that I'm frustrated by, all the things that make me sad, and just list them out, fill up a page with my sorrows, and just sit in that, man, I come out of that feeling the nearness of Christ, that he's close to me and that he knows what it feels like to be in the position that I'm in. That's his heart. Psalm 56, 8 and 9, you have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Do you realize, do you realize, friends, that Jesus records your tears and forgets your sin. He keeps record of your tears. He remembers your sorrows. And he forgets your sin and remembers it no more. His heart is to draw near to you in your mourning. He comforts us by covering our sin, by the closeness of the Holy Spirit, and through the companionship of his people. One of the ways that Jesus wants to draw near to you is through the people of God that he puts in your life. That when, when I or another friend or brother and sister sit with you in your sadness and cry with you, you experience the sympathy and the nearness of Jesus. Allow other people in to walk with you in your mourning. Oftentimes you don't need words, you don't need solutions, you don't even necessarily need prayers. You just need a brother or sister to be with you, to be with you in your sorrow. So I'll just leave you with, the, with this question, where, where is the pain in your heart? Where's the pain in your heart that's too deep for words? What, what is it that keeps you up at night? What is it that leads you to mourn? Maybe some things are coming to mind even now. Guys, life is hard. Behind every smiling face is a suffering soul. There are things that trouble your heart. What are they? Do you know them? Can you name them? Jesus is not repulsed by those things. He doesn't withdraw from those things. In fact, the, those pain points, they invite him in to, to bring his comfort to bear in your life. And so may we find in our mourning 
a thin space where the veil between heaven and earth is small and the presence of Jesus is big. May we find in our mourning the the comfort that is promised to us here in God's kingdom. The rivers of living water that Ezekiel said would flow from the, the kingdom of God out into the world leading to human flourishing, they spring forth from broken hearts. So may we mourn, may we be a lamenting and mourning people, inviting Jesus into our pain, inviting others into our pain. And as we do, may we remember that the day is coming in Revelation 21, the last place that we read the word penthos, the last place that we read of mourning. We long for that day when Jesus will return to earth. And in that day, mourning and crying and pain will be gone. That day will come. That day will come, friends. And until it does, let us be a mourning people who experience the comfort of Christ. Let's pray. Let me do this before we pray. We're going to take communion in a minute. We're going to come down the middle, grab the juice and the bread, and go to the outside, back to your seat.